Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In April 2014, 19-year-old Shane Carthy seemed to have it all. One of the best young Gaelic footballers in the country, an All-Ireland winner with Dublin, he'd just been awarded Man of the Match in a Leinster Under-21 final. But just two weeks later, Shane found himself in St. Patrick's Mental Health Services, being treated for severe depression after two years of inner turmoil that led him to consider taking his own life. Shane's long and difficult path to recovery is a harrowing but inspirational story that resonates far beyond sport. He's told it now in a book called Dark Blue, in the hope, as he puts it, that he might light the path for others suffering as he once did. Shane, great to have you with us and, and thanks for talking to us. Thanks, and congratulations on, on the book. Um, growing up as a young boy in Port Marnock, you were, as you put it in the book, you were on a pedestal. Yeah. in the views of others, um, obsessed with sport, driven for success. When did you first realise as a child that you had, as one of your coaches put it, something special about you? I think it was, if I did, was to think back now in my primary school days, um, you know, at the sports day, um, I remember my first kind of aspiration was to be awarded junior sports boy of the year in third class. And looking back now, it's a funny thing because like it's it's absolutely not such a big deal. But in around that time, that was the serious, seriousness that I took my sport in. Um, and I guess that kind of talent for any sport that I threw my hand at um, was echoed that sports day where I picked up my first uh, junior sports boy of the year and, and coincided then with four years of success at, at that particular rate. So I guess when I realised I had something, as you say, quote unquote special, um, was in and around that kind of primary school days of third to sixth class where I was like, okay, there, there's something um, that I want to go after here, in particular Gaelic football, where granted in a smaller context, by the end of sixth class, my uh, Dublin career would have began. Um, you know, when I was representing the North Dublin team. So I guess that was my first realisation and my first kind of love for a, a proper sport in the shape of Gaelic football, what it began in around then. And you had this drive to be the best that you could be at it. You, you refer several times to your dad saying that if you're going to do something, do it to the best of your ability. And that was almost like a, a mantra for you growing up. Yeah, and I've and I seen, you know, I, I think it was as a kind of manifestation of seeing what my dad was doing in his life. Um, he was hugely hard working um, he'd worked for advanced sorry pissed off for 30 plus years and I'd heard about uh, the many many stories where he wouldn't even come to my sister's games because he was working so hard and yeah. um, you know in his later life he kind of you know t took work um, less seriously um, and that's where he kind of came into my life in particular in sporting context and I just tried to you know mirror what he was doing in his general life and in particular for sport as he said anything you do do it to your best of your ability. So that's what I was trying to do from a very early age. I was, I was probably years ahead of where I should have been at 11 and 12 and having that drive to be the best that I could be. But I guess that put me in good stead for the, for the years to come thereafter. 
so you're in your teenage years, you, you mentioned you were representing Dublin from primary school stage. Um, you go on representative teams. You talk about it giving you an air of invincibility. Yeah. Um, that was all part of being what a Dublin footballer meant. So how much of your identity was wrapped up in your sporting life? I think at that stage my whole identity was, according to me anyway, I guess I was so tunnel vision in the fact that nothing else was going on in my world. Um, it was only Gaelic football, it was sport in general, but in particular Gaelic football, as you say. I was lucky enough to represent the Dublin development teams all the way through from you know under 12s onwards and I was seen as this idyllic figure, this invincible kind of figure living this great life and um, even if from the stature I was always you know bigger than everyone, uh, everything going on great in my life and probably in around that time it was you know I had a, had a great life with loving family, supporting friends and everything going well uh, in around that time so um, I, I guess I was lucky and privileged to, to be in that position. Yeah, um, but is there at that stage a sense of separation from others that you weren't doing the normal teenage things that you're, you were you were a, a, a cut above a different different path? Yeah, and I guess I kind of had difficulty within that at the start. Uh, in particular, kind of the start of my secondary school days and first, second, and third year, where I was trying to find myself. Everyone was trying to find themselves, of course, in a new area, new surrounding, and trying to you know find their own path in life and. I just thought, you know, I wanted something so deeply in my, in my life to give me success and that was in the shape of Gaelic football and as my friends were going, say for example, to the junior cert night looking for any amount of fake ID and drink they could get their hands on, I was going the opposite, I was going up to the Gaelic football pitches with my dad and I guess only after a couple of years of people realising the drive that I had to want to succeed in my life in that shape and they kind of just let me go and that was Shane, that was, that was his life and that's where he was going so I became more comfortable within that, um, in, in that context I guess. So we have the picture now of, of the teenage superstar that people are looking at up there aspiring to use the, the word idyllic life mm -hmm. up on a pedestal a lot and you make the Dublin Miners in 2011 um, still at a young age and um, the team loses the final All-Ireland to Tipperary mm -hmm. but you're, you're resolved the next year to go right back at it and, and right the wrong uh, in, in, in the following season um, but in January 2012 um, the, the trouble starts. Tell us what happened. Yeah, it was, as you say, January 2012, the middle of fifth year. Um, embarking on my second year at Dublin Winer Football with that inevitable goal to right the wrong and go one step further. Um, but little did I know in the middle of fifth year um, when I was having these days where I was not quite up for the day. Couldn't make sense of it. You know, I had either a Dublin match and out with my friends, out with my family, and I couldn't quite make sense of it. I couldn't, you know, bring myself to think, why am I feeling this way? Why can't I attack the day? And, as I referred to that pedestal-like figure that I was seeing up on, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't say it to anyone. I was thinking, mm. if I said that to someone I'm, I'm struggling within, you know, they'd think I was lying. For what's wrong with you? You're living the idyllic life. You're playing for the double minor footballers. There's nothing wrong with you. So I kept it within. My only crutch, my medication at the time, was sport. It so happened to be football, maybe five, six times a week, as it were. Um, and that was my only outlet at that stage, I guess. Your your football career is is getting better and better all the time. Mm. Um, but it seems that as that happens, your inner turmoil gets worse. And as you said, I think you used a phrase, a negative thought spiral, that you feel you're up there, mm -hmm. you've nothing to be complaining about, therefore why should I complain? And that, that there's a roller coaster. You have an un unbelievably brilliant, um, powerful image at this stage in your book where you say that there's, you felt there was two people inside you, one small in stature, frail and in desperate need of help, mm -hmm. and the other all conquering and decisive. So can you, can you explain that? Yeah, I think the way I, I tried to describe to people was the two lives that I was living. Um, that kind of small small man in stature, that frail kind of 
um, you know, I would say depressed fear as it were in around that time. Little did I know it was depression. Um, you know, so wanting to, to get the help that I so deeply needed because it was getting ever worse as I progressed on in my life. But on the opposite side then, the other life that I was living, this all-conquering idyllic figure playing for Dublin in front of 82,500 people, having all the success in his life. I was torn between the two and, you know, the bigger side, that kind of idyllic life was, was a winning over because I felt like I couldn't let that other person out. So on the outside looking in, living this idyllic life, internally, I was struggling big time. You mentioned there, I'm, I'm, you know, it's interesting to see how you were coping at this time because mm -hmm. it'll be two years of, of, of this struggle. You mentioned exercise as, as a medication and people do often talk when they talk about mental health about, you know, exercise is a great way of, of dealing with things. But it's only a distraction, isn't it? Like you're, yeah. you know, the, the elephant in the room is how you describe that you don't go near that. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I was, I was kind of tiptoeing around it. I, I didn't directly kind of confront the, the elephant in the room, as you say. You know, it was so, so difficult in around that time. I was training five, six times a week. Those happy endorphins were literally just clinging onto a coattail of, of, you know, the survival mode that I was in. As I put it, I was only, you know, just surviving. I wasn't living at that stage. And I was only getting to the worst point of my life. Um, little did I know the manifestation of two years that I would get to. Um, but that was the difficulty that I had within. As it was getting worse, my life was going on an upward curve. Um, after the Dublin minor footballers, then obviously, of course, being invited into the Dublin senior footballers still in school. How do you remember that now? I mean, that's that's extraordinary thing to happen to to an 18-year-old um, winning all Ireland minor. You talk about going back to school then you know, shortly before that, and that being a really tough time because the pedestal just gets bigger. Everybody's pointing at you, going, "There's Shane. He's absolutely flying it." Mm -hmm. And you get get called up for the dubs, the senior panel at such a young age. Mm -hmm. Were you able to experience the joy in that at all? No, and that was the difficulty that I had in around that time, that joy that I should have been feeling when I had said it to my dad, who was, of course, as I say, you know, from my younger years, only wanting the best for me. And I don't think, you know, I didn't think he didn't believe in me, but it was quite a surprise that at 18 years of age, still in school, I was re now representing the Dublin senior footballers, and I could see the joy that everyone else had in my life, but I couldn't feel that. And that kind of just, as you say, that negative spiral continued on because I was thinking, why can't I feel the joy that everyone else is feeling for me? Um, and even my abiding memory of being, you know, invited into Dublin Senior Football Panel, those morning gym sessions that we had at 6am, you know, I was getting changed after the session and into my school uniform and there's the likes of, say, Stephen Cluxton or Kevin Nolan, who was on the team at the time, you know, in their teacher's uniform per se, and they were like, you could be in my class if you're in my school this afternoon. So it was a rarity of the situation that I found myself in and that I found real difficulty within, I guess. Shane, it's worth pausing to, to remember at this point and, and you're going through obviously your own internal issues that you're also in at the ground floor of what would go on to be the most successful team in, in the history of, of Gaelic football. And you talked about the kind of pinch yourself nature of it. There's, you know, mm -hmm. people like Stephen Cluxton and, and Kevin McManaman and those, those kind of figures. Mm -hmm. are, are they are they welcoming or are they sort of, you know, laddie, you have to keep up here and, and, and match the standards that we're setting or what was that like? Yeah, hugely, and, and I guess it was a kind of pinch myself moment because I was still in school at the, at the time, you know, I was 18 years of age, and uh, you touched upon even Kevin McMenamin, and I remember my first kind of couple of sessions that, that were up with the uh, Dublin Senior Footballers, and Kevin came over to me, and of course I, I know who he is, of course, you know, and he came over to me and shook, shook my hand and said, I'm, I'm Kevin McMenamin, nice to meet you, anything you need, just, you know, um, you know, you can bend an ear with me and that, that type of thing, and I was thinking, 
how, how is this guy so humble of, uh, of everything he achieved only you know back in 2011 of course the iconic goal that he had scored against Kerry and here's me you know amongst these lads um, but I guess the kind of humble nature of them is the mark of, of the men that they are in particular you course touch upon Stephen Cluxon but you know the likes of Johnny Cooper these lads kind of coming up in around that 2013 time but even in, in your with your struggles you were able to appreciate it because remember you had mm -hmm. been the kid all the way through desperate to, to, to wear the blue and, and be part of it and mm -hmm. you know that time even though you're, you're I mean that year 2013 Dublin win in All-Ireland and mm -hmm. you know you're going through your own turmoil is there is there did you did you feel you got to savor it at all or no, I, I, at that time I, I didn't, and I guess when I look back, I, you know, it was maybe a regret at the time, and of course it was. You know, I was 18 years of age, living the idyllic life, get my hands on a Sam McGuire, achieving, overachieving in my career to date, um, and I guess I look back at it as a piece of motivation. You know, when I was on top of the Hogan Stand steps, I should have been feeling the elation that an 18-year-old should have been having in around that time, and I guess I look upon it as motivation to get back there and feel every bit of what mm -hmm. I should have felt because the numbness that I was experiencing, the lack of emotion I could attach to anything simply unfortunately you know wasn't there you have the, the the week of celebrations after the all-ireland that are so familiar to you know <laughs> every year that yeah. any, any county that, that wins the all-ireland you, you kind of take part in that but at the end of that week as you as you've mentioned that horrible thought enters your head for the first time that that you may you may have to end it mm -hmm. that must be a frightening moment for any young man Massively, and I think that was, you know, the, the start of what was going to go on to be a horrible internal dialogue, a dialogue that I didn't want to have, but these voices in my head were saying, end it all now, and the more I had it in my head, the more I began to rationalise it, um, and as I say, it was six, six days after the All-Ireland final, you're thinking, you know, I'm riding a crest of a wave after a, a you know, a, a booze up in, in Dublin city centre for the whole week, and I should have been, you, you know, enjoying every bit of it, but I simply couldn't, and that moment where the first internal kind of suicide like is, is that, is that a, a tough time you know you're out you're out socializing crowds in Marion Square mm -hmm. what are you feeling when when everybody else is singing and, and drinking and dancing and having fun numbness and that's that's what it was numbness and I was so desperately wanting that kind of conveyor belt of emotions that should have been coming around of happiness elation absolutely everything I couldn't attach myself to it I simply I was there physically mentally I was elsewhere um, and kind of then looking back after all that kind of week of the elation of you know going on to Marion Square and the sing abouts that we had in Dublin City Centre and around that week, it was certainly, certainly difficult in around that time and I guess that's why my mind brought me to that place of you're not feeling the way you should be feeling, so I end it all now and that was a hugely scary moment for me. You do start to think I, I, I've, got to, I've got to reach out here, don't mm. you? But then devastation hits your family mm. from, you know, from, from behind uh, totally catches the family unawares doesn't it tell us about that yeah so winning around that time and building up the courage okay I need to speak up as I said these suicidal ideations weren't leaving my side and I didn't want to act upon them so I was thinking okay I need to say something I didn't know what I wanted to say but I need to speak up and devastation did hit our family in around that middle of January it uh, first came in the shape of a friendly match down in Cork as my mum and dad do right to this day they travel right around the country um, and they were down in this particular game for the under 21 Dublin footballers and my mum receives a phone call off my uncle to say her her dad had passed away. I was, of course, unaware of it at the time. I was, I was playing the game and I followed in um, after uh, coming off the team bus. And one o'clock in the morning, something not quite right here. Why are my mum and dad standing here? And it was where they met me with the news that my grand had passed away. And as I spoke about that numbness, that lack of emotion I could attach to anything, I simply said, I'm sorry, and I left the room. 
and it was the first kind of real warning sign for them thinking I would have been so close to my granddad. I would have remember, remember kind of visiting him every couple of weeks where he should have told me I should have scored another 10 goals in whatever game I was playing in. So, so I would you, been... you couldn't process that grief? No, no, absolutely not. And, and I should have. And, and that was the thing because I was so close to him. He was, he was a huge kind of idol in, in my eyes from a very young age. You know, I aspired to be like, just like I did with my dad. I aspired to be like my granddad. He was so in tune with everything I was doing and I just couldn't attach any emotion to it. I simply kind of just acknowledged it and said, okay, and I left the room. And it's such a, such a weird kind of reaction to, to, to have with, with such a piece of devastating news. And that internal dialogue that I was beginning to have, thinking I need to speak up, that was definitely quashed then around that time. Um, and I began to build up yet again a couple of weeks after the passing of my granddad. But unfortunately, just six weeks after the passing of my granddad, my nanny had passed away too, both on my mum's side. Mm. Um, so you can imagine then what I'm thinking internally. Whatever I'm going through in my life can't even compare to what my mum and family like are going through. So as I did for that previous two years, I shut up shop. I put up that poker face and I said absolutely everything was okay in my life. And I had football as that kind of crutch, that outlet to, to get me out of the dark hole that I was continuing to go in. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You, you talk about a constant repression of your identity, mm -hmm. uh, which means the inevitable is around the corner. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the day then of the, the Leinster under 21 final in April 2014. Yeah, so a very, very pivotal time. Um, and I guess a time that I look upon as probably a, a turning point in my life. Um, the Leinster final, I had to look forward to that evening, as you say, down in Portlaoise. And on that Wednesday morning, um, my mum found me in a flood of tears. Um, as there was crying, I don't know. The emotional tap was open and it just felt like I was so defeated here. I just, I don't want to hide it anymore. And that was the first sign that she had seen, that she thought she was seeing at Christmas, mm. right in front of her eyes, her 19-year-old son in a flood of tears. Um, and it wasn't a whole lot that she had done in terms of, you know, saying, saying much to me, but it was when she had sat by my side and put her arm around my shoulder that I knew that I had that listening ear right by my side that I so deeply needed for those previous two years. And I think it was a couple of hours sitting there, you know, weeping as, as it were, and um, my mum knew she'd need to break the trend, you know, bring me out for a couple of hours, so she contacted my middle system Raid. It was off on that particular day, so she came over to the house and she brought me out for a couple of hours and um, I still slag her to this day. The, the bright idea in her head was to bring me on a cliff walk out in the hills of Hoth. Right. Um, probably not the most idyllic thing to do before a Leinster final, but again, it was similar enough to, as it were, my mum. I had that listening ear 
that listening shell the right by my side and my head never left the gravel. I could just, you know, see one foot in front of the other, but just knowing that I had it right by my side. And as I came back into the car, the cliff walk, of course, came to an end. And I'll never forget, as I shut that door, I spoke about those kind of thoughts and feelings that were, you know, going on for those two years. They couldn't bundle straight back in. And it was the first time I was thinking, maybe not even football can be my outlet at this stage, such as the inner turmoil that was going deep within. And I had my manager, Desi Farrell, at the time from pushing button away to say, look, I can't go through it this I can't go through it this match this evening. I'm in such a bad way. And to this day, I don't know why. I never went through with that phone call. Um, so I went off home and I got my gear bag ready and I prepared for the match as I always did. And I met the lads in the team hotel for the pre-match meal. And even at that, you know, I was there in the team hotel. You know, the busyness of it, the, the buzz of a championship match in around that kind of time. I couldn't feel that. I'd maybe half a sup of water and that was it. I was off on the bus on the port leash. Um, and, and I guess that kind of internal dialogue then was going deep within. I was on that bus. Um, I, I'm sure probably people can relate kind of listening in that, you know, I sat myself at the, up at the top of the bus. I had my headphones on. I had a certain set of songs, maybe a certain playlist that brought me to a happier time and place, whether it be with a family member or a friend. And I was playing it as loud as I could solely to drown out the thoughts that were going deep within. Mm. Um, and halfway through that bus journey, I contacted my middle system right to say, look, I'm in such a bad way here. I can't go through with this. Um, and she texted me back, as my family did for those previous two years, right by my side, they want to see me out on the pitch. So I did, I arrived at the ground and I prepared for the match that I always do. Um, I think I took half a supper Luke's aid and that was it, I was off on the pitch, off on the port leash. And I say to this day, to be honest, it was the most satisfying 60 minutes of football I've ever played in my life. I was like a kid in the playground again. You know, I was running away from the thoughts that were going deep within. And if I'm right to remember, I think it was two or three minutes left in the game and we're four or five points up and I'm looking to the ref and you're probably thinking, you know, I'm telling him, blow, blow the whistle up. And I was thinking the exact opposite. I was thinking, no, don't blow that whistle. That's I'm in heaven sanctuary here. sanctuary for you. That was my sanctuary. That was my safe haven. That was where, I guess, the internal dialogue that was going deep within couldn't get me, you know. And of course, inevitably, he blew that whistle. Um, unfortunately, we were victorious in the game. But out of that, it was actually word of man the match. Um, as I'm walking on top of these steps, the pedestal-like figure that I referred to way back in those kind of early days, living this idyllic life yet again, collecting his man to match award. Little did people know what was going, for me, going on for me only 12 hours previous in a full of tears, my mom, my sitting room. They just seen this idyllic figure yet again, living yeah, this great lit life. Literally up there in a pedestal. Mm -hmm. um, afterwards, your, your family have booked you on a trip to Sweden to see your sister, Michelle. Why did they decide to do that, that it would be a good idea? And tell us what happened over there. I guess the reason why they did uh, was, you know, three sisters, Michelle, my older sister, maybe I confided in her a bit more than I did with my other two sisters. Um, and their kind of whole thinking was whatever he's perceived to be hiding, he's going to tell his older sister, Michelle. He always has done it in the past and he always did. But little did they know, I didn't know what was going deep within. As I said, the cloudiness was at an all time high. I couldn't quite make sense of it. But nevertheless, today after the Lancer final, as they say, we book a trip to Stockholm and I went over there and I, I'd spoken with her as I did with my mum and dad only a couple of weeks previous and um, how I've been feeling th this way for the last two years and, and in recent months I've had thoughts of dying by suicide. So I guess for my sister here and that so many thousand miles away, so deeply wanting to help me, you know, it was, it was hugely devastating for her to, mm. to kind of hear that her little brother, you know, at 19 years of age wants no part of this world again. But that's all I could furnish her with at that stage. Herself and, and um, Joey, who was her boyfriend mm -hmm. at the time, just like your mother, though, they're there. Mm -hmm. And, and they're, people are one, maybe wondering, what do they do in this situation? What do they say? A lot of the time, it's 
Just to be, just to listen? Just to listen, yeah. And, and I think that would be my piece of advice for anyone kind of maybe thinking, how do I receive this information if someone kind of leans on me as a, as a listening ear, a listening shoulder? I think for, as it were, my mum and dad, um, you know, as it just were with Michelle and Joey, they had simply listened. All I needed was a springboard, a soundboard to kind of convey my emotions. I wasn't quite making sense of things, mm -hmm. but at least I was getting it out in the opening around that time. Your last night in Sweden then, you, you go for a walk, you have a low night and you go for a walk and, and you make a very important phone call to your friend Mo. Tell us about that and why it was so important. I think in around that time, as I said, I was clinging on to things. I didn't want to act upon what I was thinking. Um, and in around that time, I, I'd hit a huge low on that particular evening. So I went out on a walk, as you say, and I found myself in a bench park, hunched over, uh, as was a familiar thing for me in around that time. And I'd made a phone call to him. Um, and for the first couple of minutes, I, I couldn't get anything out. Um, he was at, at the other end of the phone. I could hear him and just the tears and everything was welling up, the lump in my throat. I couldn't quite make sense of what I was trying to tell him. Um, it eventually did come out. Um, and I guess that kind of phone call brought me back to, back to reality. Um, where my mind was going simply wasn't reality. And I think he had brought me back to a point in time. You know, he'd spoken about kind of the years previous of the great memories that we had because I conveyed how I didn't want any part of this world. And he just then started speaking about the kind of things that, you know, were great memories for us as friends. Um, you know, when we first became friends and in the middle of second year and a, a trip out to Germany and, you know, that certainly brought me back within to think I do want something part of this world and I do want to be part of it and I do want to experience these kind of highs that I, I did all those years previous. So that was a huge, huge turning point in, in my kind of, I guess, recovery and realising that I am a bit of something here. I, I do deserve to kind of continue on in my life. Shane, you're no longer alone in this, but your toughest battle is, is still ahead of you. Um, you make it back from Sweden, um, your, your family helping you along the way with, with, with texts and, and that struggle between the rational and the irrational side of your, of, of your men mentality is going really, really hard at this point. But the next person you contact is so important in your story, isn't it? And it's your manager, um, Desi Farrell. Mm. What does Desi do at this point that's so crucial? I guess he was the first person that was giving me the answers that I didn't have. Um, as he spoke about that kind of, you know, Sunday evening as I came back from Stockholm, um, I texted him and I said, look, can I meet up with you for a cup of coffee? And um, he agreed. And of course, I met him the next day in, in Costa Coffee in Santry. And when I'd spoken to him uh, for the five minutes that I did get to speak to him, um, you know, I was letting him in what was going on for me for those previous two years. And it was the first voice that was coming back that was resonating with me, that was relating with me. Of course, he had previous depression. So I was thinking in around that time prior to that conversation, I was the only one in the world going on what was going on for me, I guess. And it was such a surprise to hear, I can completely relate to you, I know exactly what you're talking about. And for me, I guess that was a, a small, a small, small weight off my shoulders to kind of think, okay, I'm not the only one going through this kind of difficult time. And in around that time, he'd said, look, I'm going to set you up an appointment with a psychologist and we're going to get you out on the, the other side and you're going to begin your journey. And uh, for me, that was a huge turning point. I guess that was the kind of beginning of, you know, me coming out on the other side, uh, very much in a small way, uh, but it was certainly the beginning, I would say. So, but things co still come to a head, though, a few days mm -hmm. later. You're heading to Castle Knock for a team meeting and, and you have a fateful panic attack mm -hmm. despite the progress you've made the small steps that you've made by, mm -hmm. by talking to your family and talking to Desi and Desi engaging with him and, and almost starting out on a, on a better road mm -hmm. why does it reach that crisis point 
I guess in around that time, as you say, after that meeting with Desi, it was the following day, it, as you say, we had that meeting out in Castlenock Hotel and along the journey, you know, we trained in DCU that morning and we're on our way to Castlenock Hotel. And the reason why I did get to that point was, I guess I didn't, you know, confront what was going on for me. Everything that I was trying to unearth, everything I was trying to make sense of in my head was still up there. Um, and of course, this kind of panic attack had transpired and I blacked out. My next abiding memory was being woken up in St. Patrick's Mental Hospital and I guess, that was maybe, as I say, uh, in another small way, um, my, my journey back from the edge, I guess, because I was beginning to then realise, okay, th there's a way out here. I'm beginning to have the, kind of these conversations in the weeks and months that had transpired thereafter. It, it was scary. It was hugely scary. And I, I think when I was woken up after this panic attack and, you know, uh, being woken up by these two softly spoken nurses to be told where I was, which was St. Patrick's Mental Hospital, and straight away, my kind of irrational mind went straight to the film Shutter Island. It was one of, it's been one of my favorite films over the last number of years and um, it, it still is to this day. And I guess that kind of rational thinking of, I'm in a dark, dreary room, people in straight jackets. And that's where I thought I was when I heard this term mental hospital because straight away, I was thinking that film Shutter Island that they painted this picture of what a mental institution is like. Um, and of course, I quickly learned, you know, in the kind of minutes after going into the breakfast room, it was anything but. How do you, get from the, the person who goes in there and and thinks that in three days time they're going to walk out and play an All-Ireland semi-final, this irrational person processing things like that, mm -hmm. to 11 weeks later a person who is on the road to to recovery or certainly at least mm -hmm. understands where they've come from and, and where they've been a hell of a lot more. Mm -hmm. I guess it was a huge learning process of, of ups and downs uh, as it is with depression and in around that time at the start, you know, you're, you're speaking about that irrational mind of kind of that All-Ireland semi-final that I thought I was going to play when I met my doctor and, uh, on my first day saying, you know, the average stay of a patient is two to four weeks. And I was thinking of, a, of an All-Ireland semi-final to play here. I'm, I'm not staying here for two to four weeks. And I just didn't realise the point that I got to in my life that I didn't want to live anymore. But yet I was still thinking football was the most important thing going on in my life. And only thereafter, I guess, I, I inevitably didn't play that All-Ireland semi-final. And, coming to the realisation then thereafter that there's an awful lot more to life than football. Yes, it's it's given me a lot and it has um, given me a lot in my life and even thereafter, I guess. Um, but at that time, I was thinking I need to kind of step up on this pedestal in a different way um, that I didn't quite think I had had to step up on um, in terms of kind of letting people know that this man living the idyllic life um, can go through difficult times, so so can you. And that was a huge turning point in my journey. Um, I guess not only personally, but kind of then everyone else kind of realising I can go through a difficult time as well. So it's a rough process though because you have you, you have breakthroughs and mm -hmm. progression, but you also have really you know big reverses as well. And, and you mm -hmm. talk about accepting the need for medication as feeling feeling a bit of a failure there. And you even like there's a moment where you again you have suicidal ideations while you while you're in there. Just tell us a, a little bit about that. Yeah, so that that kind of th thing of you know the ups and downs that I was experiencing, I. I and I was in around that time thinking of suicidal ideation and it wasn't even too far by my side. As I was trying to get this clarity, I still had kind of two steps back in, in some form of my kind of recovery and one of which was actually being brought to what was called the security unit at the time um, at a particularly bad bad stage where I just I'd uttered out to the nurses that I didn't want any part of this world, they wanted to die. And I think for me, it was a learning curve when I went in there because in the security unit, as, as grim as it may sound, you know, your laces are taken off, you're 
your, you know, your strings from your hood. And that's the reality of the situation. Um, purely for the protection mechanism of my own life, that's what had to be done. And you know, even kind of looking back at that time, you know, I, I, I seen it as a huge learning curve. Um, when I kind of even look back at the stories that we had even had in there. We talk about that decision to, to use your pedestal for good. Mm -hmm. And you've, you've said there, you've, you want to come, come out and tell people about your story and make the decision to go public about it. Mm -hmm. Desi Farrell makes a statement um, and you talk about this, you're going to be lighting a path now. Mm -hmm. How, what, what was that like when that was out there in, in, in the public and suddenly it was, it was all out there? Was there any sense of, did you have a lingering sense of shame about it or were you now on a, on a path of being proud of, of what you've been through? I think I'd reached a point where I, I was proud of, of where I was at. Um, it was the reality of the situation with where I was at and you know, putting it out publicly was a huge kind of step in my overall process and that kind of weight off my shoulders. Um, I wasn't aware of the reaction that I had gotten at the time because I'd gone off all social media. Um, I was aware, of course, as he was making this public knowledge in the press release just prior to the All-Ireland Final. But um, once I knew it was out there, it was, um, it was kind of a big kind of sense of achievement for me and pride that, okay, I've, I've let kind of people know with where I'm at. Um, and I can certainly move on with my kind of ongoing process of a journey, um, I guess, back to a bit of normality in my life. Um, all the time you're, you're getting stronger and you talk about how you change as a person in this time. Mm. Appreciation, as you mentioned there, that there's a life outside football. Mm. You talk about appreciation of the smaller things in life, like your, your, your obsession with coffee and things <laughs> like that. So yeah. why is that important to your story, that change of, of, of you as a person? I think, and w without wanting to use a cliche, I think you know all those experiences in St. Pat's, you know, shaped me into the man that I am today. And those kind of little kind of things, the small things that mean the most to you. And only when people go through the most difficult of times that they can relate to this. That it was the likes of like a little cup of coffee brought in for my sister, a little arm around the shoulder, a little compliment, a little text. Those small things were meaning so much to me. Where once I was so naive and thinking, okay, football, football, football. That's all that's going on in my life. And I was appreciating things around me. I was beginning to ask my mum and dad about their life. You know, things that were going on. I asked my dad to tell me about his soccer trips, and you know, it probably. I regret at the time, you know, we go on for two or three hours about it, but dad stories, dad stories, yeah. and the whole lot. But it, it was great. It was so nice to be able to broaden my horizons. As my mom and dad, you know, once had said prior to my admission at St. Pat's, you need to broaden your, broaden your horizons. I had only come to that realization of what she really meant when I was in St. Pat's, of getting that bit of clarity of what exactly she was going on about in around that time. And then you get the, the word from the doctor. He sits you down and says, I think you're ready to go home. Mm -hmm. How does that feel? shock I guess maybe a bit, a bit of disbelief that um, I thought it was just another kind of rigmarole of going in and checking up and how are you getting on and what we what are we going to do next week and I was fidgeting around I wasn't quite um, coherent in the room and once I heard you know I think you're ready to go home I certainly latched eyes with him um, and just a broad smile I remember that kind of came across his face and I guess I got those butterflies in my stomach to again that kind of pride in me that I've done so much here I'm ready to go out to the outside world, if you like. So, Shane, three months after being ready to, to surrender your life and not feeling it was worth living, you see what you describe as a path ahead illuminated with hope. Does that feeling of accomplishment that you, you mentioned there, does it give you a pride and happiness that you're able to actually experience as a genuine emotion in the way you weren't able to experience mm -hmm. lifting the Sam Maguire uh, a year previously? 
Yeah, I think it definitely was. I think uh, in around that time, uh, for a couple of weeks even previous to that, I was beginning to feel these emotions again. I was beginning to kind of experience, you know, things that I should have experienced so many years ago and just latching onto them as I refer to kind of that conveyor belt of emotions. I was seeing that now and I was beginning to be able to actually latch onto them. And that pride piece was hugely beneficial in kind of my overall kind of context of how far I've come here. 11 weeks, three months ago, I was a broken man and I'm coming out a completely different person. Um, and it definitely was something I could feel in around that time. You get the call from Jim Gavin to come back into the, the panel, which I imagine is, is huge. How did you find re-emerging into society at that time after you've, what you'd been through and indeed rejoining the, the, the Dublin senior football panel at that time? I think it was difficult. I think it always was. I, I'd, I'd never once thought when I came out of St. Pat's that it was just going to be rosy again. You know, I certainly knew that there was going to be an awful lot of learning for me. Um, and not only for me, but my family, to let them in what, you know, what works for me, what doesn't. And in around the time I've been brought, into the, brought back into the senior football team, I think I was, of course, hugely apprehensive. Um, I was nervous of what the lads would think of me. Um, you know, what have they heard? What do they think you know, of the overall kind of thing of mental health? And coming back into my first session, I remember, as I spoke about those smallest of things, it was actually in the shape of, uh, of Paul Flynn when we had a gym session um, it was my first session back and I was there you know getting ready and he'd come over to me and he'd tap me on the back and he'd say good to see you back mate and for me that was the biggest thing as in that was all my worries kind of just wished away in, in one small tap of the back and I'd said it to him years later he goes like I couldn't even remember that and for me as I spoke about those smallest of gestures mean the most and that certainly for me was a, a big stepping point back into the team. And then you dropped off the panel in 2017 the senior panel and that seems like it might that might be a big test for you. How do you handle these situations in those years? I guess I looked upon even those kind of, uh, you know, in different parts, as you say, after, you know, a couple of big matches where I found myself back in hospital after having a panic attack. And it was difficult, but I knew why what that was the case. You know, I was kind of coming into a point where I was beginning to kind of feel sick of talking. And that certainly was a learning curve for me that it wasn't a thing of I need to keep things within because it gets to that point of having panic attacks and the likes of that. But the beauty of it was that I had psychologists along my side to be able to unearth why that was the case. And it wasn't getting into a point of putting away for two years. It was a couple of days and I could unearth it again with them. And even thereafter, of course, you spoke about kind of, you know, being dropped from the Dublin senior football panel. That was hugely devastating. Of course it was, it would be for anyone. Um, but I was more versed to kind of adversity in my life um, as I spoke about how it shaped me into the man I am today. I think that kind of spread across all as, uh, facets of my life, whether it be my personal life, social life, or in, in this context, of sport and life, that a bit of adversity to face me. I need to kind of act upon it in a positive way. Um, and I think I certainly did. I, I, I didn't go down a dark path again. I seen it as something to kind of work on and and kind of try to get back in with them as I did um, that year after then. Is, is this where the mental health toolbox comes in handy? Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, so it was actually, a, yeah, the mental health toolbox, it was something like coined back in St. Pat's. Uh, I love that kind of visual of kind of having tools in that mental health toolbox. And I had so many things that I built up upon, uh, particularly in St. Pat's and the time thereafter. Um, and probably comes as no surprise if I was kind of named number one, of course, it'd be physical exercise. It was what got me through two years of the worst time in my life. Um, and it's something that gets me out of a, a dark hole at this particular juncture in my life as well, particularly in around these COVID times. And that playlist, that podcast, bring me to a happier time and place. And then having that kind of comfort of speaking to friends or family, if I am going through a bit of, of a stressful time in my life, to have that kind of leaning ear that I once never had, 
Um, so I have plenty of tools in there. I love that kind of visual of a mental health toolbox and I think it'd be a great kind of thing for a lot of people to pick up upon. Yeah, it's a great image um, to have, isn't it? And, mm -hmm. and you've used those things that you've, you've learned in such an important way since then. That phrase you use about lighting a path for others and, mm -hmm. and, and you know, helping those suffering in silence is how you've said it. Um, public speaking then becomes a, a big part of your, your life mm -hmm. then. What has that experience done for you? What has it meant for you? And are you surprised that it's something that you've become, that's become such a big part of your life? Mm -hmm. I think it has, and I think you know it came to me in a in a way that I didn't think it would. It was a, a message I received on Facebook back in 2017 to say, "Look, would you be interested in in doing an event for us?" It was in Kilkenny College, and I think maybe a crowd of about 100 people. Um, and I was hugely nervous because I was never versed in the in the way of public speaking. I, and I, you weren't a, a loud kind of showy person. No listen to me, everybody look at me kind of person anyway. No, and the contrast between, as I spoke about, as I shied away from that pedestal so many years ago, I was now you know, stepping up and upon it and, and using it in a positive light. Um, and I guess for me, when I looked upon why I chose to do it, uh, was because I wanted to kind of give that voice for people that were suffering in silence. Um, I'd come such a long way in my path that I was comfortable enough to share my own experiences in the hope that I could have an effect on maybe one person in that room in that particular evening or day, whatever it may be. What would you say to the 17, 18 year old you now, if you were able to, to talk to that person with everything you've learned in the meantime? Yeah, and I, and I think it's one thing, I'm very careful in saying about kind of having a regret in a story. I, I don't think I should have, but if I was to look upon one thing I would change, uh, certainly to speak to that 17 year old, 18 year old self to say, speak up on day one, speak mm -hmm. up in the middle of fifth year, because the path that I went on thereafter, although difficult, um, was certainly a path worth traveling on, I guess to look back upon that kind of time that I wish I'd have spoken up in, in the middle of fifth year where I probably thought it was hormonal changes going on in my body. Um, and that's what would be my advice to anyone. You know, no matter a problem, big or small, speak up, you know, get it, get it off your chest. And I'm, I guess, testament to that, that, you know, you can go through difficult times and get out there after as well. You had great help in your time and, and you mentioned the GPA helping out and I guess they're probably involved in that side of things and making sure these young athletes are, and organiza organizations like them are, are catered for off, you know, off the field as well. Desi, obviously, St. Pat's, but it's, it's frightening to think, Shane, isn't it, of people who don't have access to that kind of support yeah. when it's needed. And that's something you're, you're quite passionate about now, isn't it? Yeah, hugely, and I think that's, one of the big reasons why I do this is because I'm very much aware that I was in a very, very privileged position of being Dublin senior football to have those contacts of the GPA, you know, having Desi by my side. A lot of people don't have that. And I've come to that realization, you know, over the last couple of years, in particular the last couple of months, receiving messages of people, to, you know, in the same situation that I was, you know, in suicidal distress and t being told, we don't have an appointment for you for six months time. You know, that absolutely shouldn't be the case. And mm -hmm. the reason why I'm trying to voice my kind of concerns about it is the government give it a lot of lip service and not to get too much into it, but I think they need to kind of wake up into the realization that we need to get our mental health services in check here because this isn't a matter of a broken leg, it's life or death for a lot of people. Let's sort of w wind up then, Shane. Let's get back to football. Yeah. Um, you're back at, uh, on the panel this year on, at the moment on a yeah. temporary basis, I think, or a sort of a you know, see how it goes, yeah. uh, which yeah. is great. Um, how do you feel about football? Does it still drive you in the same way? Do you still dream of playing a, in front of 80,000 at Croke Park? Hugely, yeah. And I think even kind of thinking back about that kind of motivational piece of 
want them to feel something that I should have felt back in 2013. That was one of my motivations to get back um, amongst it with the lads. Hopefully it is the summer lifting Sam Maguire. And I guess, you know, football is a huge part of my life, but it's not the only thing going on. My love for football never diminished. And I guess as I have other aspects of my life going well, I can in turn play better football. And I think just being that kid in the playground again, you know, don't put too much pressure on myself. Just go out there and enjoy it for what it is. And I think that's the best way to kind of approach sport in general. You never resented the game for, for, for twisting anything in your own psychology no. as a young man? No, hugely not. And I, and I think it was my safe haven. It was something that I still have, uh, have as a crutch and as, as an outlet. So I never kind of look it upon as a negative, um, you know, those highs that I had had that brought me to the desolate lows. It wasn't a causation of what I went through, I guess. So, um, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to getting back out on the pitch when I speak. I think I speak for a lot of people saying that. How did it feel watching the likes of, you know, Jack McCaffrey, Paul Mannion, Cormac Costello? I mean, even Brian Fenton, famously, mm -hmm. he took your place in that 2014 Under-21 final, and he's gone on to be, you know, he's regarded as one of the, mm -hmm. the best players in, 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 in the current era, maybe of any era. Mm -hmm. So many of them you could say the same about. Mm -hmm. Do you ever feel like that was my... That was my life. That was my chance. That, that should have been my story. Or mm -hmm. how do you view it? I guess at the start, I maybe had difficulty within that. It certainly wasn't from a, a jealousy point of view of what the lads went on to, because you know I love the lads. I've, I've played alongside them for many, many years, and love to kind of see them going on to the into the players and the people that they are today. But I guess for me, it was just maybe a motivating factor more so than anything. Um, not looked at as a negative, looked at as a motivating factor to be want and to kind of get back amongst those lads and the success that they have been lucky to have um, and are so humble in it with it, uh, with it as well. So I would love nothing more to be back alongside them and playing the game that I love, I guess. Mm. Um, Brian Fenton said a lovely thing recently um, after you, you speaking out around the book and, and getting back to, to um, Dublin action, he said he'd love to play alongside you. Footballer of the Year, of course, yeah. uh, in your position. That, that's a, that must be a nice thing to hear. Yeah, I think I returned that sentiment to him. I would love to, to play alongside what I think is, is going to kind of go down or he is going to go down as one of the, the greatest footballers of all time. And I think that's just testament to the work that he puts in and that he has. And he didn't have it all rosy back in his days. He wasn't part of the minor panels as I were. And look what he's gone on to do. So I would love nothing more to, to be you know, playing alongside him. And, and what a fantastic man outside of football as well. Well, I'm sure um, Dublin fans will, will agree with that. Fans of other counties will completely disagree <laughs> <laughs> uh, on that score. But it's, it is, it's, a, it's a brilliant thought. And look, we'll see what happens on that front. But finally, Shane, um, it's, it's funny. You touched on it there. With your, with your role now yeah. outside of football as a public speaker with the book, mm -hmm. um, which is a brilliantly told account of, of, your, of your story that will resonate with so many people, mm -hmm. it feels like you, know, you are back on a pedestal. <laughs> Yeah, back on, you know, up there, people looking at you. But I guess it's for very different reasons this time. And does it feel very different? It, do, it does. I, th I think it feels different in terms of that pedestal that I was seen back upon in 2013 is, um, you know, probably seen upon again in, in these days of 2021, but it's different. Um, you know, I've a completely different uh, mindset. I'm, I'm better able to kind of handle this pedestal that I'm up on. I'm very proud to be up on. Um, and I guess I'm trying to just give a voice to absolutely everyone, as you say, through the book or through my talks. Um, and I'm hoping to just be one of many, many thousands of people that will come out with their stories and echo that sentiment that it's okay not to be okay. Shane, thanks so much for telling us your story. Appreciate it.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 